1 Corinthians 13 is called the love chapter. Exodus chapter 2, the providence chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, our text this morning, is called the grace chapter. We're going to look at that this morning. Grace is a very large word and oftentimes, unfortunately, misunderstood. However, one of the songs that we sang today, Amazing Grace, was the number one song on the hit charts in 1898. And it is America's favorite song, even today. Persistently, through the decades, annually, in all the surveys and polls, Amazing Grace is America's favorite Christian song. Uh, So this morning, I want to speak on the subject of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. And I'd like to ask and answer the question, why does God's grace amaze so much? Bear Bryant one time was interviewed about his philosophy of coaching, and he demonstrated great grace. He said, I tell my players three things. He said, if something goes really bad, that's on me. If something goes semi-good, partly good, then we did it. If something goes really good, you, the players, did it, is what he used to tell his players. A.B.'s confirmed that, in fact. And Pear Bryant understood the value of transfer, and that is transferring mistakes to himself and transferring victory to his players. What a marvelous thing. That's precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ is willing to do with anyone who repents and believes the gospel. Very happy to do so. He's a gracious, generous, eager God that loves to bless and loves to save and loves to cancel the penalty of sin against sinners. He loves to do it. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, what the Lord makes clear through the Apostle Paul is that grace transforms the one who repents and believes the gospel into an active, serving Christian person. Beginning in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, And you he made alive together, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all conducted ourselves, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." You can understand grace when you understand it is amazing. And perhaps that is the most urgent factor today, is just to embrace God's grace is not merely a common attribute of God. God's grace is an amazing attribute of God found nowhere else in all the earth except in His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, what amazes about grace? Well, there are several things. God's grace, first, amazes because it reaches to amazing depths. It reaches us at amazing depths, and that's verses 1 through 3. 
Look at the deep, awful, tragic depths to which the human race has sunk without Jesus Christ. There first is depths of our deadly sins in verse 1. He made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. When I was in college, we had to take a science lab, and over in the corner was a large uh, plastic garbage can. Inside of it was a plastic bag filled with formaldehyde and a cadaver in it. And I got curious one day, in fact, nearly every day in the lab I got curious and lifted the lid on that cadaver. It was not a pretty sight. And we usually did it when the professor wasn't, either wasn't looking or was out of the classroom. But the curiosity of it just got most of us, and we would oftentimes look into that plastic garbage can. Beloved, the text is saying we are that dead because of trespasses and sins. We are a cadaver. I remember a few months ago when we were in Baltimore on our mission trip with some of our men. Chuck Ivey and I were going through the streets trying to witness there in downtown Baltimore. And we witnessed to one lady, but we got a, got a whiff of an awful, rancid, but sweet smell. Chuck is a detective for the athens Clark County Police Department, and when we were done witnessing to this young lady, he said, I've smelled a dead body. And as uh, an officer, he had to go report it. So we found the fire station across the street, and he informed them that there was a dead body nearby where we were witnessing. And they said, well, we know all about that. Three days earlier, we had found a woman who had passed away. And she'd been removed three days earlier, but the smell was still prominent and effusive on the street. Ladies and gentlemen, we are as dead in sin as a cadaver and as smelly as a corpse. And it still lingers throughout the earth. Before God, we are dead, that dead in trespasses and sins. The depths of our deadly sins, then the depths of accusing sins. He says in verse 2, in which you once walked. You did. No one coerced you. But we have done this ourselves. We are personally responsible for our sins. We had the opportunity to make choice. God has given us freedom. God's given us uh, dominion. God's given us opportunity. And with those choices, we have chosen to sin. So the depths of our deadly sins and our accusing sins, but also the depths of popular sins. Verse 2, according to the course of this world. In other words, it's it's the popular thing to live in sin. It's the popular thing to engage in choices that infuriate and bother God according to the course of the world. So the depths of popular sins, then the depths of satanic sins. Paul has an interesting label for Satan in the text. According to the prince of the air, when Adam and Eve yielded up the earth, when they sinned, they relinquished it to the control of Satan. And he's been the God of the world ever since until Jesus repurchased the earth When he died on the cross, he has not yet taken possession of it. One day he'll split the eastern sky and he'll take care of that. He owns it and one day he will return to take possession. But ladies and gentlemen, Satan energizes sin. Those outside of Jesus Christ have an an energy and a motivation and an intensity about sin that is empowered by Satan himself. You may say, well, no, I do not. Well, then stop sinning. Rid yourself of temptation. You can no more rid yourself of that than you can rid yourself of the air on the earth. And so Satan is very active and alive in those outside of Jesus Christ. Then, the depths of our normal sins. Verse number 2. 
We are the sons of disobedience, like father, like son. In other words, there is a family resemblance between us and sin. Then, the depths of our satisfactory sins. We do this according to the lust of the flesh, and we indulge our desires. I I, I would be misleading you, and I would be lying to say, if there was no pleasure in sin. There is, but it's only temporary. And the truth is, is that whenever we engage in sin outside of Jesus Christ, it may be very satisfactory for a time. It may be very pleasurable. That's why people do it. And so, satisfactory sins. Then the depths of habitual sins. It says in verse 3, by nature we are children of wrath. This comes about because of our nature. Dogs bark, cats meow, Justin Bieber can't sing. It's just the natural thing. (laughs) Then the depths of dangerous sins. Children of wrath. In other words, every moment outside of Jesus Christ, we constantly incur the wrath of God. We store up wrath for the day of judgment, the text says. And so every moment lived outside of Jesus Christ is a sinful moment and it provokes and incites the wrath of God. But look at verse 4. But God. This text here overthrows some popular notions. It overthrows humanism, which says man is good and man defines all things. This text overthrows that notion. Man is not good. He's valued and he's loved, but he's not good at his core. By nature, he chases sin. It overthrows the notion of postmodernism, which says there's no one thing that's always true, always right, always wrong, always false in anywhere in the earth. It just depends on your community. It depends on your personal choice. God has something different to say. He condemns the whole earth in this text because there are some things that are always true, some things that are always right, some things that are always wrong, some things that are always false in all the earth for all times, all places, because God said so. And then this overthrows the notion of evolution, that we are on our way upward, becoming better and better, more and more advanced. The truth is in the other direction. We're not on our way upward, we're on our way downward, and the news of the past month could easily prove that. This overthrows so much what Zig Ziglar used to call stinking thinking and mental malpractice in all the earth. So here's what we find in verse 4. But... God. We are corpses. We are as smelly as three-day-old corpses. We are cadavers. We are that dead. And we don't even have the benefit of being preserved in formaldehyde. Yes, but God loves corpses and God loves cadavers. It's what he does. Because the text goes on to say, but God who is rich in mercy. Right now, ladies and gentlemen, that amazing grace is sounding rather sweet to me. How about you? But that's not all. It not only reaches us at amazing depths, but it also raises to amazing heights. It raises us to amazing heights. Now, this is a remarkable thing, and it may take you a while to get your mind around it. But you have to understand, at the cross and at your salvation experience, if you've repented and believed the gospel, something amazing and spiritual and eternal happened when you came to Jesus. There was a marvelous transaction that took place. When Christ died and rose again, that is really clear in the text. And it's hard sometimes for people to get their minds around it, so pay careful attention. The context of this whole text, and especially verses 4 through 7, 
is in the previous chapter, in chapter 1, verse number 20. Speaking of Jesus, he talks about mighty power that he gives believers, that's like the resurrection, and he goes on to describe that power in verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he placed all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The context here is what happened to Jesus after his crucifixion. The Father reached into the tomb and enlivened the corpse of Jesus, brought him back to life and rolled away the stone. And by the way, they did not roll away the stone to get Jesus out, but so disciples could get in. Jesus could take care of that all by himself. And then he ascended to heaven and he sat down at the place of honor at the right hand of the Almighty. And he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And since that day, he's been gathering all things under his feet. And one day that will be final. That's the story of Jesus. Crucified, buried, enlivened, raised, ascended, seated. Verses 4 through 7. Look here with me. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, by grace you've been saved, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, did you read that? Did anything here in verses uh, 5, 6, and 7 sound familiar to you? Let's let's look at 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 it again. Made us alive together with Christ. Raised us up together with Christ. The implication is. Made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Does any of this sound familiar? Knowing that you would repent and believe the gospel... Here's what happened. When Jesus came alive in the tomb, you came alive with Him. When Jesus raised from the dead, if you've repented and believed the gospel, you were raised as well. When Jesus ascended to heaven, you ascended with Him. When He sat down on the throne of high, you sat with Him. In other words, The grace of God not only reaches the deepest depths where we're sinners, but it raises believers to the highest of heights. And so Jesus Christ's story becomes the story of anyone who repents and believes the gospel. How great the Father's love. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That is precisely what the Father is eager and zealous to do, so much so he crucified and executed his son at the cross to achieve it for all believers. What a marvelous thing. It reaches us at the deepest depths, at amazing, startling depths. It raises us to amazing heights. So when you come to Christ, you are hidden in Him. And all the benefit and all the favor and all the grace and all the majesty, all the glory that goes to Jesus Christ is shared by every believer on the earth. Who would ever want to run from this Savior? Smith Carter High School in Kansas is a 2A school of just 150 students. 
Playing Plainville one game, they scored 72 points in the first quarter. By the time national networks caught up to what was going on at that school, they had outscored their opponents that season 640 points to zero and never punted once. Now, some are impressed with that, but I've got to tell you, that doesn't compare anything with what Jesus has done. Some won a football game. Jesus won the battle of the cross and death. There is victory and Jesus, and that amazes me. So, it reaches us at, the, at amazing depths. It raises believers to amazing heights. God's grace in the third place amazes because it reveals an amazing God. I believe it was at Southwestern Seminary at about 1959 or 1960 that an evangelism professor wanted to illustrate God's grace. And so on the final day of the exam, students came in and the professor met them at the door and handed them a thick... Uh, thick, stapled set of papers. They had no idea what they were getting on the final day of class, and they walked in, and it was the final exam. And it had an instruction sheet that said, read through this exam entirely and completely, and then go back and begin the test on the first page. And some students followed instructions, and they started reading through, and they would get into the second or third page, and it was obvious the professor had made the exam far too difficult for anyone to pass. There were questions on the exam they'd not covered in class or the reading assignments. Some students got angry. In fact, and these were your future pastors. They would pick up the exam and they would throw it at the professor's desk on their way out. Some students, though, read through the entire exam as instructed on the cover page. And they got to the last page. And the last page read, you can take this exam, take your chances, and get the grade that you've earned. Or you can go back to the first page, sign your name, turn it in blank, and get an automatic A. You don't have any teachers like that. But what God is inviting you to do is to come to the gracious God. Unless you're perfect, you'll never be right with God and get into heaven. So you can try. Everyone has failed. And because we've all failed, God has said, sign your name to the cross and resurrection by faith, you get an automatic A. And He's inviting the whole earth to come and to repent from self-righteousness and that arrogance that would cause you to try and to come humbly before God and bow it all before Him. And that's what we find here. This is an amazing God who has amazing grace. Verses 4-7, through I don't know if you noticed the big words here, but it says... This all happens because God is rich in mercy. In other words, God doesn't have a budget when it comes to mercy. He does not have to economize. He doesn't have to go online and check his mercy balance with the local bank. Not at all. There is no limit to the mercy of God. He's rich in mercy. And then it goes on to say, because of his great love, his literally in the Greek text, mega love with which he's loved us. The mega love with which He's loved us, even when we were corpses and cadavers, dead in trespasses and sins. And by grace you've been saved. He's raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places. Watch this. And here's the purpose. In in eternity, the ages to come, He wants to show the exceeding riches, the surpassing riches of His grace. In other words, there's no end to it at all. 
And then he wants to show the surpassing or the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so rich in mercy, great in love, surpassing grace, and Christ-like kindness to corpses and cadavers is what the text makes very clear. Let me ask you something. Think of the worst thing that has ever happened to you. The worst wound, the worst injury, the worst insult, the worst abuse that's ever happened to you. I know that's unpleasant, but think about it for just a moment. Now let me ask you the question, can you forgive that? Do you struggle with it? Most of us do. God is rich in mercy, great in love, surpassing in grace, and Christ-like in all of His kindnesses. Listen, listen. God has never had a moment's difficulty forgiving any sinner who repents and believes the gospel. It's never occurred to Him to struggle. He has no difficulty. He doesn't perspire. He doesn't have to pray about it. He doesn't have to ask for strength. All that's necessary to instantaneously and instantly forgive a sinner when that sinner repents and believes the gospel is there immediately. I'm amazed. But there's a fourth reason why grace is so amazing. God's grace amazes Because it results in amazing works. Frank Howard, when he was coaching Clemson University many years ago, uh, had a practice day starting Monday that was probably about the worst any coach could think of on a Monday. He had five quarterbacks on this particular team. I've never heard of that, but he had five quarterbacks, at least five options. And the first first string and the third string quarterback were injured before practice began on Monday. Ten minutes into practice, the second-string quarterback was injured and was out for Saturday. And then ten minutes later, the fourth-string quarterback was injured. The first, second, third, and fourth-string quarterbacks were injured. The only one available for Saturday happened to be the fifth-string quarterback. So Frank Howard called him up. And Charlie Waters, uh, formerly of the Dallas Cowboys, told this story. He looked at the fifth-string quarterback and said, Son, do you believe in magic? And the boy kind of stuttered and said, well, sort of. He said, poof, you're a first-string quarterback now. (laughs) Hey, wouldn't it be amazing if a coach could look? Wouldn't it be amazing if a coach could look at a player and say, poof, you're a number one recruit on my team? Wouldn't it be great if that kind of instant transformation could come in football or any other sport? It, it, it can't. There's no such thing as that. But beloved, that is precisely what God does when a sinner repents and places faith in Christ. God immediately transforms them. In verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He transforms us into amazing works. Now, there's several things about these amazing works. One, these amazing works are limited. 
Now, in verses 8 and 9, we've got some back and forth between the positive and the negative statements here. Look at verse number 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, you have come to trust Jesus' death and resurrection only and God's grace through that. That's a positive statement. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Then he goes negative. And that not of yourselves. There's nothing in you that you will ever produce or that you naturally have that appeals to God to save and forgive and cancel sin. Not at all. And so that's the negative. The positive, you've been saved by grace through faith, and it's not of yourself. That's the negative. Then positive, it is the gift of God. Now, if I need you to work for me on Saturday at my home, you need a little spending money, and I ask you Monday to come by the house, and I'll pay you a certain amount, say $100, and you come on Saturday and do the work, is that a gift on my part? No, it's what you deserve. But let's say you call early Saturday morning and say, David, I sure do need that $100, but I'm sick and I can't make it. And so I go ahead and do the work myself, and when I'm done, I come by and just give you the $100. Is that what you deserve, or is that grace? Is that a gift? Beloved, we get salvation and forgiveness of our sins the last way and not the former. God does the work and then comes and gives us the benefit of it. So it's not of works. It's a gift of God. Then here's the the, the second and third negative statement. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. In other words, if your virtue and if your goodness and religious works and morality could get you into heaven, you could strut in heaven. And someone could say, why are you here? And you would say, well, I read my Bible and I lived a clean life and I gave and I served other people. You could boast about yourself. Beloved, I've got to tell you, the only people that are going to make it there into that place, into the kingdom, are those who've said, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I have no appeal to God, no virtue. That's a joke. I I have no righteous works. They're like filthy rags, the Scripture says. All I've got is the work of Christ. He did the work and He gave me the benefit of it when I placed faith in Jesus. So these are limited. So don't get the, uh, don't get the notion that your religious works make you right with God. Then, amazing works are divine. Verse 10 said, we are His workmanship. In the Greek text, that's emphatic. We are His workmanship, not our own. When we came to Christ Jesus, He began a process of recreation of our soul and our heart. And so He does the work. Look, there are two reasons you're on this earth. One is to glorify God by repenting and believing the gospel. Glorify God in salvation. The second is to glorify God by living out the purpose and planned work God has for you. Those are the two reasons why you're here. And so amazing works that are limited, amazing works that are divine in origin, and then there are amazing works in the third place that are prepared. God prepared these beforehand. Before he ever did the work of creation, he planned the work of your life. In other words, God does first things first. For you to engage in the work God has for you is more important than the creation of the earth. And then these amazing works are works that should consume us, that we should walk in them. This needs to be our life purpose, simply to do the work that God has given to us. So listen. God saves no one by works, but He saves in such a way that they go to work when they come to Jesus Christ. So you may be sitting there saying, look, I've tried to fix my life many times. I mean, I can't get on track with anything. 
And you may be tempted to try harder. Well, imagine a corpse or a cadaver trying harder. You're just going to frustrate yourself. You're just going to disappoint yourself and your family and others. In fact, the more you try, probably the worse it's going to get. Some of you have already found that out. Do you know why? You don't get your life on track by trying harder. You get your life on track by trusting more. Not by works, but by faith. You get into this life by repudiating any idea that you're righteous before God, that it's even possible for you to grow in virtue without Him. You set that aside. You, you, you repudiate it. You reject it violently. And then you simply cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. Friend, I've got to say, that's amazing. It reminds me of Chris Hogan. He's the football coach of the Gainesville uh, Christian Faith High School. And they played Gainesville State School. Grapevine Christian High School played Gainesville Christian High, uh, State School in Texas. And Chris Hogan was coach of this great team. The Gainesville State School is a juvenile uh, lockup facility. And there's so many kids there that are in lockup that have violated the laws of Texas that they uh, have formed a football team there. And they play other teams. They've got to play there on the facility. They're not allowed out. But Grapevine Faith Christian High School came to play them one game. And Chris Hogan got the notion that he wanted to bless these kids in this state school. And so what he did is that he had the parents put together a roster of the kids in the state school, in the juvenile delinquency school. And they learned the names of the kids. And when those kids from the Uh, that were incarcerated came out onto the field. The parents formed a spirit line and welcomed them out. And he had the parents sit behind the bench of the Gainesville State School to cheer the players on by name because no one would ever show up for their games except these Christian parents. For that, the NFL gave Chris Hogan a free trip to the 2009 Super Bowl. What it did. Beloved, I've got to say to you, I know you're a corpse. I know you're a cadaver. I've been there myself. But there's a God in heaven who's cheering you on. And He wants you, if you'll repent and place faith in Christ, He wants to make you His own. And not only to get you on His team, He wants to make you His very own child. The relationship is so much deeper than that. And that is precisely what He wants. But you've got to give up the notion. You've got to give up the notion that you can earn virtue with God, that you can impress Him with works. You've got to repent. Jesus said, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. And you've got to come by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will call on His name, He will do it. Call to me in the day of trouble, and I will hear you, and you shall glorify me, he promises. Let's pray about it. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for the good news of your word. We exalt you for that. And dear God, I thank you that today anybody who repents and places faith in Jesus can be saved. We honor you for that. We thank you. We're very grateful. And I thank you for so many that have come to the Lord through these years. And I pray now that you would give friends the necessary repentance and faith to call on you and to say yes to Jesus Christ. We commit that to you. 
and ask for the work of your Holy Spirit. And no one's looking around. No one's staring. I want you just to merely concentrate and solely concentrate on God. But He promises whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right where you're seated, why don't you humble yourself before God and tell Him, God, I'm a corpse, I'm a cadaver. Use your own words. But I'm dead in trespasses and sins. And I'm guilty. Use your own words, but take a moment to humble yourself in that way before God. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And now, why don't you turn your trust 100% to Jesus Christ? And trust that God will forgive and cancel the debt of your sin because of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. You tell God that. Use your own words, but you tell God that. (laughs) Scripture says, Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Ask the Lord to come into your life and consume you and make you a public an excited follower of Jesus Christ. Use your own words, but ask Him to do that. Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a song, and when we sing, we'll have staff members here in the front. If you have just asked the Lord to make you a public and serious follower of Christ, I want you to step out from where you are. You're in the midst of friends. If you're ashamed, stay where you are. If you're hypocritical, stay where you are. But if you're entirely sincere and proud of the Lord Jesus, I want you to step out from where you are, meet a staff member here, and tell that staff member your spiritual need, what you're intending to do with Christ, and we will help you take the next steps. Some of you have already done that. You need to follow Christ in baptism. Some of you need to follow Him by being church members here. Some of you, God's calling into ministry or missionary service to communicate the Word in a full-time vocational sense. You come as well. But quickly, I want to ask you to stand with me. I'm going to finish my prayer. We're going to respond. Father, I pray that in these moments, the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in Your sight, O God, our Rock and Redeemer. Make it so for Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.